Welcome everyone to Infectious Conversations. I'm Candace DiMatteis, Vice President of Policy and Advocacy for the Partnership to Fight Infectious Disease, and welcome you to our podcast. Through these infectious conversations, we're having discussions with healthcare professionals, policy experts, patient advocates, and other experts to get a grip on how to squash superbugs. Our goal is to better understand the threat antibiotic and other antimicrobial resistance or AMR pose and the need to address it now. What are some of these superbugs and what can be done about it? We will also want to understand how we can build on lessons that we've learned throughout the COVID-19 pandemic and continue to learn and other healthcare experiences that will help us all stay healthier. Today, our segment features a discussion with Christian John Lillis, Executive Director and Co-Founder of the Peggy Lillis Foundation. The foundation was created by Christian and his brother after they lost their mother to C. diff. The foundation leads an awareness movement by educating the public, empowering advocates, and shaping healthcare policy, and is working toward a world where C. diff is rare, treatable, and survivable. We'll be discussing both C. diff, what it is and what you need to know to protect yourself, the foundation and other issues related to this illness, including different policy solutions that policymakers are considering or should be considering. First, let me introduce Christian. Christian John Lillis, as I mentioned, is the executive director of the Peggy Lillis Foundation and a co-founder. He and his younger brother, Liam, co-founded the foundation in 2010 soon after the loss of their mother to a C. diff infection. Christian has more than two decades of experience in fundraising, advocacy, and nonprofit management, including the National LGBTQ Task Force in the NYU Langone Medical Center. As head of the Peggy Lillis Foundation, he has led five national convenings of C. diff advocates, built a 50-person volunteer advocates council coordinated the first ever C. diff lobby day on Capitol Hill in Washington, DC, and produced the first ever public service announcement on C. diff infections. In 2013, the CDC or Centers for Disease Control and Prevention recognized the Peggy Lillis's Foundation's work with its Excellence in Partnership Award for Domestic Advocates and Organizations. I'm going to stop there, Christian, because I could go on and on, but I think people are ready for us to get started. <laughs> so welcome, Christian Lil- John Lillis. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you. I mean, I would have sent a shorter bio if I knew you were going to read it. <laughs> um, well, thank you for having me. Um, I really appreciate the work of the Partnership uh, to Fight Infectious Disease uh, and love that you're expanding into podcasting. It's, a, it's like an exciting development, and it's a great opportunity to share information with the public about these serious um, infectious pathogens, if you will, and the risks that we all face. So why don't we start there with a little bit of background. Can you explain to us a little bit more what exactly is C. diff and why it's so important that we all understand it? <clears throat> so C. diff, um, and C. diff is short for Clostridioides difficile. Uh, which is a very difficult to pronounce Latin term. Um, and so C. diff is a gram-negative bacterium. Uh, it incurs in nature. We find it in soil. We find it 
um, in the feces of a whole variety of animals. Um, in fact, most uh, babies are born with some amount of C. diff bacteria in their feces, though it generally disappears between 18 months and two years of age. Um, and about 2% of what we would consider healthy adults uh, have C. diff bacteria present in their guts. Um, and about 10 to 20% of older Americans, particularly those who are in hospitals or nursing homes, um, have C. diff uh, present in their gut. Um, and, you know, listeners may be familiar with this concept of the gut microbiome, uh, which is, you know, within our gastrointestinal system, there's basically this uh, ecosystem of microorganisms. And those microorganisms do a lot of great things for us. Uh, they help us digest food, they help us convert nutrients. Um, so we really uh, are have been learning over the past 15 to 20 years the important role that the gut microbiome plays in our health and our well-being. So what it means to have a healthy gut microbiome is to have a broad diversity of good bacteria and other microorganisms um, that are kind of, you know, living in your gut harmoniously, uh, doing their jobs. And so those of us who do have C. diff bacteria in our guts, uh, that percentage of us, it can be there. It can be there alongside all of the other uh, good bacteria. Um, and it doesn't really cause us any harm. However, when our gut microbiome is disrupted, and this is primarily, though not exclusively through the use of antibiotics, the C. diff bacteria, which is a, a particularly hardy bacteria, it can survive the antibiotics that we take. And then once a lot of the other good bacteria has been killed off by the antibiotics, it can start to grow out of control. Um, and that's when we call, you know, we say you have a C. diff infection. Um, and the symptoms of a C. diff infection are uh, urgent and uh, frequent diarrhea, uh, fever, nausea, um, and, you know, people can sometimes feel that their colon is inflamed and will have tenderness uh, and or, you know, discomfort um, in their, in their uh, tummies. <laughs> um, in their tummies, uh, well, discomfort in their, in their, uh, in their stomachs. Um, and so at that point, uh, it becomes a real problem. Um, and so the Centers for Disease Control, the CDC estimates that about half a million Americans have a C. diff infection annually, and C. diff either directly or indirectly causes um, about 30,000 deaths every year. So it's a big public health problem. So let me back up for a second. So how you said how many infections a year? Was it? About half a million. Half a million and then 30,000 deaths. So that's that seems awfully, that's a pretty high percentage, it sounds like. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's higher than um, at this point, there are more deaths from C. diff every year than there are from HIV AIDS mm -hmm. um, and also driving under the influence. Um, a big part of that um, in the 90s, uh, I think the most HIV deaths we had in a year was about 85 or 90,000. But there's obviously been a uh, you know, multi-decade prolonged public education campaigns you know, development of new drugs and, you know, and now, you know, for people who, uh, you know, get tested, know their status and are able to get on to, um, 
you know, the new medications that they have, HIV can be a manageable illness. Um, but we just have not had a similar push around C. diff. So let me ask you this. You talked about that some people will have C. diff in their system and may never know about it, may never need to know, I'm assuming, as long as things are um, maintained in their balance. But that healthy gut you were talking about in the microbiome, is that where the prebiotics and the probiotics come into play as, as part of that? And how do antibiotics affect that? Yeah, so, um, so, so pre and probiotics, uh, I mean, ideally we would get them from our diet. Uh, the best way to have, um, you know, what we mean by a probiotic is, a, uh, is an item, a substance that, you know, encourages the growth of healthy bacteria, same then prebiotics or, you know, generally substances, uh, mostly fiber that kind of just creates uh, a healthy environment in which, for which the bacteria to, to grow. Um, and so, as I mentioned earlier, you know, we have this, uh, you know, in some ways fragile ecosystem in our guts. Um, and so when we take antibiotics, um, especially oral antibiotics, you know, we might be taking them for a staph infection. We might be taking them for an ear infection. You might be taking them for a dentist uh, visit. And what people don't often realize is that a lot of antibiotics, what we call broad spectrum antibiotics, they're fairly indiscriminate, meaning they kill all the bacteria they find. Um, so you could be taking it because you have an infection after a root canal, but the antibiotic doesn't just impact the infection uh, around your tooth, it, it impacts, particularly if you've ingested it, it kind of kills off all the bacteria it finds there. And C. diff is tricky because C. diff um, is what they call a spore forming bacteria. So if you can imagine like it has a vegetative state in which it is sort of, you know, growing and multiplying and reproducing, and then it has a spore state where when it's outside of our bodies or in a hostile environment or exposed to antibiotics, it becomes almost like an egg corn. And that, that sort of egg corn, that hard, hardened shell around the bacteria can survive antibiotics. So once the antibiotics have, you know, as a side effect of what you're treating, killed off a lot of the good bacteria, the C. diff comes out of its spore form, starts to replicate, and in replicating, it gives off toxins. Um, and you know, bacteria isn't sentient, it doesn't want to hurt us. <laughs> but it's just like, you know, in the way that some of the things that we do, whether we're like making food or producing stuff like it has waste attached to it. So it's very similar. But the toxins just happen to be um, damaging to the lining of our colon, which causes, you know, colon inflammation. Um, in the worst case scenario, you can end up with an, uh, a, a syndrome uh, or a situation called toxic megacolon, which means that your, mega, your colon has become filled with necrotic uh, colon tissue from so much uh, toxin, and it has sort of grown and distended, and you're unable to really digest food or absorb food properly. Um, and that's usually when uh, a person with C. diff would end up going into septic shock, uh, mm -hmm. succumbing to it. 
Yeah, no, it sounds very serious. So what, given that it is a bacteria and it's related to antibiotic use, if you need to take antibiotics, are there ways that you can help maintain that healthy biome? I mean, do you need to get tested to see if you've got C. diff before you take antibiotics or are there other things that people can do proactively to protect their themselves from developing C. diff? So it's hard to know. I mean, there are PCR tests that you could potentially take. Um, the problem is that most of the tests for C. diff are, are, are designed to be used for diarrhea, you know, mm -hmm. or with loose stools. So if you're having sort of solid, uh, you know, well-formed stools, the test, it's, it's hard to test for it then. Um, but, uh, you know, you can, you could try, but for the most part, um, as a, as at the individual level, um, a lot of people take unnecessary antibiotics, um, medically unnecessary antibiotics, meaning they have a virus or they have, um, you know, they, they don't feel well, they have a cold, um, they go to the doctor, they go to an urgent care facility, and, you know, maybe they get tested for strep, and these days they get tested for COVID. And even if neither of those things are positive, and COVID is a virus, so you wouldn't use antibiotics for it, um, strep is a bacteria, so you would use antibiotics for that. But oftentimes, even if somebody doesn't have either of those obvious infections, they're still prescribed antibiotics mm -hmm. um, and then we'll take them. And um, <clears throat> so what we tell people is the number one thing that's under your control is to not take antibiotics. Now, obviously we don't want people who really need them to not take them. Like if you uh, have, you know, bacterial bronchitis, if you have strep, like there are certainly important times to take an antibiotic. Um, but the literature, studies over many, many years continually confirm that about half of all antibiotics are, are medically unnecessary. So what we suggest people do is, is, you know, ask their doctor, do you think I have a bacterial infection? How can we test for that? Okay, I don't have strep, is there anything else? Or do you think I have a virus? Mm -hmm. um, and if you think I have a virus, what can I do to make myself feel better? You know, there's Tamiflu if you have the flu. There's obviously um, now Paxlovid for COVID. So, you know, so there can be interventions now, but we just want to make sure that we're giving you the right thing. Um, right. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's the number one way. And then um, on top of that, having um, a diet, and I want to, you know, be clear that like, uh, for many people in this country, due to, you know, their income, their work, whatever, like, not all of us have the luxury of like making three homemade meals a day, right? So, but ideally, you would be eating a diet that, you know, is rich in fiber, rich in nutrients, um, has plants, fruits and vegetables at the basis of it. And that would go a long way towards keeping your microbiome healthy, and maybe able to resist you know, uh, the antibiotics or, or keep things in check, even if you have to take one. That makes a lot of sense. I want to turn to the foundation more specifically, and would love to hear a little bit more about the journey of the foundation. I mean, obviously this was, it was born out of a tragic loss that you, your family experienced, but would love to hear more about your experience and your mother's experience with C. diff and how, how that 
gave birth to the foundation and how your work has evolved over the years? Yeah, um, uh, <laughs> this is always the toughest part of these interviews. Um, so, so my mom, uh, Peggy, uh, she was um, a single parent from the time I was five and my brother was two. And, um, you know, I'm definitely partial, but I think she was one of the best people I've ever known in my entire life. Uh, and not just because she was my mom, but because she was uh, a caring individual, a kind individual, a tough individual. Um, she really had no tolerance for bullies or injustice of any kind. Um, and, you know, when we were kids, she was waitressing and she was going to college uh, and she eventually became a kindergarten teacher, which was what she wanted. Um, and she really loved children. Um, and my mother comes from, my mother's the third oldest of nine children uh, from a working class Irish family in Brooklyn. And so, you know, my brother and I were born into this really large family. Um, and, you know, when my mom uh, got sick, she was 56 years old. Um, her and my brother had just bought a two family house together. Um, she was teaching, she was, uh, she had a long time uh, partner, kind of like a stepdad to me and Liam, mm -hmm. um, who for work had had to move to Maui a few years uh, earlier. And so she went to Maui three times a year. It was, it was you know, kind of a, a nice life for a kindergarten teacher, <laughs> you know? Um, <laughs> And, you know, my brother and I were both with our long-term partners, um, who, both of whom we've since married. Um, and, you know, for somebody who, uh, you know, married our dad because she was pregnant, like things had turned out really well for her. Um, and a lot of that is due to her hard work, but also due to like our family and her friends and like this big, you know, support system that she, she cultivated. Um, and so in April of 2010, uh, she went to her longtime dentist, who was also mine and my brother's dentist, um, and she had a root canal, and prophylactically, they prescribed her an antibiotic called clindamycin. Mm -hmm. um, she didn't think anything of it. This is her dentist. She's been going to him for years, so she took it. So that was uh, on a Monday, and everything seemed fine. Thursday night, she started to feel kind of crummy. Um, she was finishing her master's degree at night. So she was in class. She didn't feel great. She came home and she went to bed uh, and she was uh, awoken uh, like two or three in the morning by the urgent need to go to the bathroom. Um, now, being a kindergarten teacher, she assumed that she picked up a virus from the kids. Mm -hmm. You know, she was a healthy person, but if you're in a room for 190 days every year with you know, 24, five-year-olds, like the chances of you getting exposed to a lot of viruses and even bacteria is pretty high. So even though she was pretty healthy, like once or twice a year, she would get a terrible head cold or bronchitis and she would joke that, oh, the kids slimed me. So none of us thought anything of it. It was only, um, so, you know, she spoke to her own doctor and this is uh, not the dentist, but her, her primary care doctor. And this is something that I do want to, to alert people to is that um, he prescribed her without seeing her, just over the phone, prescribed her a prescription strength antidiarrheal. 
um, which my uncle picked up from the pharmacy and brought to her and she started taking that. Um, and despite taking that, she was continuing to have sort of liquid bowel movements. Um, she called her doctor again on Monday. <clears throat> he arranged for her to have a GI appointment the following day. Um, and I agreed to take her there. And so that was Tuesday morning, uh, April 20th. And I get to the house and she just doesn't seem like herself. She's very pale. She's very lethargic. Um, and what I'm thinking is dehydration. Sure. You know, yeah. With diarrhea, that morning, makes sense. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. like my brother and his uh, fiance at the time, like, you know, they're bringing her water, they're bringing her tea, they're trying to get her to eat toast. But, you know, a doctor will tell you that if you're having regular diarrhea, it's very hard to replenish yourself. Mm-hmm. So, I say to her, I said, I think we should just go to the ER because you don't look right to me. You know, like you're dehydrated. I've worked in, you know, in healthcare uh, for a long time at that point. And I just know that if you go to a private office, they're going to say, we can't give you a, you know, an IV here. We need to send you to the hospital. So um, we went to the hospital. I'm cutting out a lot of detail here. <laughs> People can read a much more a long version of the story uh, on our website, but just to give you a sense of it. Um, so uh, I took her to the hospital. I called my aunt, my mom's older sister, who's a nurse. And I said, can you meet me? Like mom just seems really out of it. I think it's dehydration, but like, I don't know if she's a parasite. Like she's had diarrhea for five days. Like, so my aunt met me uh, a little while after we got there, um, maybe an hour or two the infectious disease attending and the ER attending take us aside and they say, um, your mother is going into septic shock. Her kidneys are shutting down. Um, Her white blood cell count is 40,000, which for folks who don't know, like a normal white blood cell count is like 10,000. So four times the normal, which shows that she has evidence of, um, of a significant infection um, potentially a life-threatening infection, and we think it's caused by C. diff. I had never heard of C. diff before. Um, and at that point, I had worked as a patient liaison for different doctor's offices. I was had been a fundraiser at NYU Langone Medical Center for many years. Um, so I was, you know, an empowered and well-informed person, and I had never heard of this. My aunt had, and so my aunt said, how could she have C. diff? She hasn't been in the hospital since in like 30 years. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, again, she was taking the antibiotic. We don't know where she got colonized, could have been visiting her godmother in a nursing home. Like there's a lot of different ways. So flash forward, um, they want to keep her overnight or admit her. Um, they start her on IV vancomycin, IV immunoglobin. Um, they do a CAT scan to, you know, to test if she has toxic megacolon, which she does. Um, you know, the doctors, this was a very small community hospital in Brooklyn. Um, and when I say they pulled out all the stops, like they called their friends at Mount Sinai, they called friends at NYU, they were, you know, sending her records places, just trying to understand like how she was so ill. Right. Um, in such a short time too, it sounds like. In such a short time. And, you know, being a relatively healthy 
middle-aged person. Um, and so it seems that taking the anti-diarrheal had basically kept all of the toxin inside of her and had pushed her into sepsis. Mm-hmm. And another thing that I want people to, to sort of be aware of is that if you get to the point with an infection where you're where you go into septic shock, there's a 50% chance you're not going to survive. It is very hard to bring people out of sepsis. Um, so they kept her overnight. Um, they did everything they could, uh, including vancomycin enemas. You know, this is a very invasive treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, she was sedated and intubated at that point. Um, and the next morning they called us and they said, you know, she hasn't really improved and we want to remove her colon uh, in an attempt to save her life. So they did, um, and that seemed to help. She started, her, her, her vital signs got better uh, through the late morning and early afternoon, but then uh, later in the afternoon, the sepsis began to take hold again. Um, and at around 7 p.m. on Wednesday, April 21st, she succumbed to C. diff and sepsis. Um, and, you know, I think if she would have been hit by a car, I might've been like, we need to put a stoplight here. You know what I'm saying? I just, right, right. I couldn't, I couldn't understand um, how my mother could die from an infection I'd never heard of. Mm-hmm. Um, and what really spurred us on is that as we started to dig into it, you know, like we obviously had to grieve, we had to mourn, um, you know, our mother was so well loved in our community that we had like 500 people attended her funeral. Um, you would think that a Kennedy uh, <laughs> had died. Um, so, um, but then, you know, once we were past sort of that initial stage of grief, we, I, I in particular just started researching it because I wanted to understand what happened to her. Sure. Um, and what I found was that this was an infection that at that point, they attributed about 15,000 deaths a year to, um, you know, several hundred thousand infections, primarily uh, in the elderly and primarily killing old people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that there had been, as I started to reach out to infectious disease doctors in the CDC, they said, well, you know, we are seeing it more and more in younger people. So what we couldn't accept was that our mother's death would be in vain. And so I don't remember the exact day because we were still in the fire brief, but, you know, me and my brother and our family and friends were like, we're not going to take this. We're not going to accept this. Like, it's not going to be for nothing. Um, and because I had my background, you know, which you mentioned earlier as a fundraiser and a nonprofit manager, um, we decided to start the Peggy Lillis Foundation. That's fantastic. And I'm so sorry for your loss, but I know your mom would be so proud of, you know, just given what you said about her personality and, um, you know, all she accomplished in her life that was cut too short, but I'm sure she would be proud for what you're doing for others through the Peggy Lillis Foundation. I would love to talk a little bit more about that. Like, what are your main messages about it? And, And you talked about how you were in a smaller hospital, but they reached out to experts, but how well known is it amongst the public, given the, like you said, everybody's heard of HIV, but I don't know how many people have heard of C. diff and given the death toll, um, that's, that's really pretty frightening, if you will. Um, but also amongst providers. Yeah. So, um, 
so it is a poorly recognized disease, particularly relative to the the amount, you know, the the mortality and the morbidity of it. Um, so when we first started doing this work, and the first time that we saw polling around it, um, about uh, only twenty eight percent of Americans have heard of it. We've done more recent polling where 40% of people have at least heard the name, but that doesn't mean that they know what it is or what to do mm -hmm. about it. It's really like eight or 10%, which I think is probably reflective of like a, of healthcare workers, uh, you know, really under, have heard of it, know what it is, you know, know what antibiotics are, the, are often the, the contributing factor to starting it. Um, and so, you know, we're definitely very focused on raising awareness. Um, you know, <clears throat> primarily because, and I think you'd appreciate this, like putting aside something like COVID, a lot of infectious diseases, people get it and they either they either die or they get better. Um, you know, people living with HIV have sort of an identity around it, but that's right. one of very few infectious diseases that people sort of think about themselves as like, that being part of who they are. Whereas when you're talking about cancer or heart disease or diabetes, like people live with those diseases, you know, with oncology, unfortunately we lose many people to cancer and to heart disease, but, you know, people have a community. They have a sense of like shared interest, shared obligation. Um, and we lack that for the most part when it comes to infectious diseases. So we want people to understand it, want to understand how they can, how they can protect themselves. You know, if you have an elderly relative, how you can protect them because they are at heightened risk. Um, and, you know, what are the, you know, the do's and don'ts of that. Um, when it comes to healthcare providers, um, I have to say there has been a lot of effort um, and it started under President Obama as, as part of like the uh, Affordable Care Act, where a lot of resources were put into uh, raising awareness of healthcare associated infections and changing practice in the hospital setting to um, A, reduce the harm caused to people, but also to reduce the unnecessary costs that it creates in the system. Sure. Um, so for the most part, healthcare workers, especially if they work at big academic medical centers, they're aware of it. <clears throat> but, you know, among private providers or, you know, tertiary hospitals, um, they may be harboring myths about C. diff, where they think it only happens to elderly people or people battling cancer. And so in that case, you know, if, if you or I showed up to the doctor and we had severe diarrhea, um, their first inclination would not be C. diff. You know, it would be neurovirus, it would be a parasite, it would be food poisoning, mm -hmm. you know, so that's another area where we're trying to kind of say like, you know what, this can really happen to anybody. You know, um, you may be aware that something like 50% of childbirths in the US are now cesarean section. And that means that those moms are blasted with antibiotics. And so as a result of that, we see increasing numbers of women who come home with their newborn and a couple of weeks later come down with C. diff. Yeah. And they don't think to go back to the OBGYN, you know? Right, right. Well, they're, they're dealing with a lot of two weeks yeah. out from a season. Yeah, but also like, you know, um, I mean, I haven't had kids. I, I, I think you have. Uh, right. I know you have. Uh, but, you know, like you wouldn't think, oh, I'm having diarrhea. Let me call my obstetrician. You think, let me go to the GI doctor, you know? So it kind of, like often people are getting it 
because antibiotics are so widespread and like the per- the person who prescribed the antibiotics doesn't hear about the C. diff case that arose from the antibiotics. I see what you're saying. It's someone else who gets Yeah, the, so it kind of doesn't have a feedback mechanism. Yeah. Uh, let's talk a little bit about some of those policy changes, because I know you do a lot around the policy front as well, related to C. diff specifically or stewardship with respect to antibiotics and resistance. Can you talk a little bit about what, where Peggy Lillis is engaging on the policy front and what you'd like to see change there? At the Peggy Lewis Foundation, we have some uh, policy goals that we would like to see implemented. And, you know, among those are increasing the surveillance and public reporting of C. diff infections. Um, right now, C. diff is, is reportable by hospitals and that, that reporting is made available to the public. But um, it, it sort of takes a long circuitous route to make it to the public and often it's kind of outdated when we get it. Um, And also uh, the law that requires the reporting is from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid. It's part of uh, participation in Medicare and Medicaid. So it's some hospitals, children's hospitals, um, critical access hospitals are excluded from reporting um, as are nursing homes and other facilities. So um, the reporting we do have doesn't give the full picture. And of course, you know, now that, that we, see that somewhere between 40 and 50% of C. diff infections are happening in the community. Um, You know, somebody has maybe had outpatient surgery, uh, you know, but they're not hospitalized. So we're not, we're not getting those cases either. So um, we have been advocating for the past uh, year or two to have C. diff designated as a nationally notifiable disease. Um, It's kind of a wonky term of art, but basically what it means is that if something's nationally notifiable and people will be familiar with things like salmonella, E. coli, HIV, gonorrhea, those are all nationally notifiable diseases. And that means that wherever they're diagnosed, lab, clinic, you know, urgent care facility, Mm -hmm. that it has to be reported to the state uh, health department and to the Centers for Disease Control. And so, we think that's critical for CETA for two reasons. A, so we can fully appreciate the scale and we can understand like, are there hot zones? You know, like, like is there an outbreak in, in Manhattan? You know what I'm saying? Like, like we just mm-hmm. don't have the ability to do that right now. Um, and then also, you know, you mentioned stewardship earlier and we are very big proponents of antibiotic stewardship, but if we could see, you know, in the community level, like where there's huge outbreaks, then we might be able to say like, you know, this community of doctors or this, you know, these urgent care facilities are over prescribing antibiotics. And how do we intervene to get people or even raise the public and say like, you know, there's a CDF outbreak in your area. There's a lot of cases, you know, maybe you, you know, try to use fewer antibiotics. Maybe you question whether or not you truly need one or or minimally don't ask for one. Because a lot of people go to the doctor and say, I want an antibiotic. Mm -hmm. Um, No, absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) Even though they're told they have the flu or, you know, there's nothing, antibiotics aren't going to do anything for you, but they're not sugar pills. They're not, there is a consequence. They no, even if biologically you active, still, they, do, yeah. they do act on your body. <laughs> they're still going to kill off all the, the good bacteria, even if you don't have a bacterial infection. Um, you know, and 
<clears throat> some some doctors um, and scientists, you know, they have come to believe. Um, so I'm Generation X. Uh, the generations after me, um, a lot of them, by the time they get to be 18, these kids have had 20 courses of broad spectrum antibiotics. Wow. Mm-hmm. And so you know, their gut microbiome may be more susceptible to a C. diff infection. That's um, so it's another area where like, we just need to, we just need to know, like, I mean, I'm also a big believer, like you can't change something you're not measuring, right? So we need to know how many cases so we can say, well, we're, all right, maybe we really have a million cases a year. So how do we get to half a million? How do we get to a quarter of a million? How do we get to a hundred thousand? Um, and then again, as I mentioned, um, you know, we really want to increase the antibiotic stewardship. And, and uh, you know, if this is undefined for the audience, what we mean by antibiotic stewardship is not is not um, withholding antibiotics where they're needed. That isn't, we have no interest in that. You know, we want to make sure people get antibiotics when, when they need them. What we mean is that we don't give it if you have a virus, right? Um, but also there's a lot of what they call narrow spectrum antibiotics that only act on certain bacteria. Hmm. And so part of stewardship is instead of giving you vancomycin or clindamycin, broad spectrum antibiotics, we say like, okay, you have a urinary tract infection caused by this specific bacteria. This antibiotic only works on that bacteria. It leaves everything else alone. And, um, there have been, there are actually, there's, a there are an, it's an antibiotic sort of that is focused on C. diff. So we have a hard time getting it prescribed because it's more expensive. Um, and similarly, you know, I'm sure you've talked on other podcasts about the antibiotic pipeline and our need to improve that sure. as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but stewardship, you know, is a critical part of that. And so we want people to get, you know, the saying in the, in the stewardship community is, you know, the right drug for the right bug at the right dose for the right duration. You know, um, so we think that's very important. And there has been some good progress there, particularly in, in hospitals. And now how do we extend that into everything from urgent care facilities to private practice to dentistry? Very important. Um, well, and as we get those therapeutics, it does make sense to match them more closely. To your point, is it a flu? Is it the flu or is it COVID? Is it, you know, I mean, people, people want that information. We've covered a lot of ground and great work that the foundation is doing. If there are, for people listening today, if there are one or two things that you would hope they would walk away um, from this podcast with information to, you know, arm themselves, if you will, with and protect their health and the health of their loved ones, what, what would you suggest that they, you wanted to make sure that people got from this podcast? Um, so I'd say two things, uh, and we kind of, you know, we kind of t- touched on it, which is, you know, we don't necessarily know when people get exposed to see if we get colonized with it. Um, <clears throat> so what people can control is how much they take antibiotics. Like, you know, so if your if your doctor says you think they think you need one, you know, ask for a test, ask to know what bacteria you're being given it for. Um, you know, oftentimes doctors think the patient expects antibiotics. So be clear that, you know, you don't want them if you don't need them, you know, and the same thing, you know, talk to your family about that. Like, you know, if you're a parent with young kids, like when, you know, when you take them in, is it an ear infection? Like, 
you know, make sure that when you're taking antibiotics, they're absolutely necessary. Because if 50% of them are unnecessary, if we stop taking that 50, that unnecessary 50%, we could cut C. diff by probably 50%. Um, the other thing is more general, which is, um, you know, there's been a lot of talk around COVID about like, don't politicize it, don't do this. But, you know, as, uh, as a gay man who came of age in the 1980s and 90s, like infectious diseases are political. Like how much resources are given to one disease over another. Um, they actually have political impacts. Uh, like a wild thing that I've learned is that um, Haiti got free of the French because the French weren't immune to yellow fever and Haitians were. So like, if you look at the course of history, like, you know, the bubonic plague changed Europe forever. Um, so I would say is, you know, if you or a loved one was affected by an infectious disease, whether it's C. diff or COVID or MRSA, like bring that up to your elected officials, bring that up you know, when, when you're talking to people that work at your hospital, like these are all things that we as a citizen should have, should have a say in the infectious disease policy of our city, our state and our not federal government. So, so that's what I would keep in mind. Oh, great advice. Christian John Lillis of the Peggy Lillis Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us today for an important infectious conversation about C. diff. For those wanting more information, Christian, what's the website? Uh, so you can find us at PeggyFoundation.org um, and you can find us on most social media uh, on Instagram and Twitter or at Peggy Fund um, or just you know Google Peggy Lillis Foundation and we'll pop right up. Great, thank you again. Thank you for having me.